Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. A big welcome to all our listeners today. We've got another great interview for you with Rich Hurst, who is the founder and CEO of Tenfold. Now, what they do is provide membership to Australian CEOs and leadership teams of multinational organisations. Some of their clients include Roche, Nestle, HP, Dell, and Amazon Services. They allow CEOs to share their biggest challenges and discuss what's working and what's not. You'll hear how passionate Rich is about learning and who he thinks are the most important thought leaders for today's business environment. The values of Tenfold are get real, go large, and give back. And they stay consistent with this by offering their clients the opportunity to nominate a charity who can access Tenfold services for free. I really love that. He also shares that one of the key success factors for leadership teams that want to go for exponential growth, and I think this is valuable for all of us, no matter what our size. He also has some very interesting ideas about how to build well-being and prevent burnout. Rich trained as an organizational psychologist and worked in the change management practices of Mercer Asia Pacific and Vodafone. I love the advice he would give to a new manager. It's really simple and quite profound. There are many great actionable tips to take away from our conversation. Enjoy. It's a real delight to welcome Rich Hurst to the Caring CEO. Welcome, Rich. Hi, Graeme. How are you going? Very well, thank you. Very well, thank you. Rich, what does care in the workplace mean to you? Care, yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's it's one of those concepts that is misunderstood or often just we have different definitions for it and and it's also one that we need to get clear on because it's becoming increasingly important. Uh, surprisingly, it's taken us this long for it to become a, a hot issue. But I think companies either go one way or the other. They're too caring, and I'll, we can talk more about that in a sec, or they're not caring enough. And few companies seem to get that balance between having a sort of a high-performance environment, which is also high care. Yeah, and it is, as you say, Rich, very much a balance. How do you try to balance those two things? Well, you know, I think there's a growing amount of great research. We try to everything we do. Uh, so just for context, we we work with the local leaders of global companies, uh, about 110 multinationals with operations across Australia and New Zealand. And we work primarily at the CEO level and with their top teams. And I think what we're seeing more and more so is that, yeah, they're obviously under enormous performance pressure, but care is a pathway to performance if you get, again, that dynamic right. But if you only focus on the care, then performance can suffer. So there is this great balance between care and challenge. And lots of people have spoken about that. People like Kim Scott, who wrote the book Radical Candor, she talks about the balance between care and challenge. That's where you know, performance happens. Um, Amy Edmondson from Harvard talks about the balance between psychological safety and accountability, you know, 
keeping people accountable to demanding challenges or demands. And so, again, it's the nexus between those two things that performance happens. So care by itself or psychological safety by itself actually isn't enough to create a high-performance environment. And ultimately, that's why businesses exist, for people for performance, and, and care is a key input to it, but not sufficient by itself. Yeah, I really like um, the work of Amy Evanson as well. And in that two-by-two matrix she has, there's the accountability and the psychological safety. And when there's low psychological safety and high-performance pressure, that's the anxiety zone. And in my experience, many organisations are in that because it has been just so many challenges. But where there's high psychological safety and high-performance pressure, that's the, the learning zone. And that's what you referred to where you're trying new things. You're never going to be 100% right, but you learn from them, you move forward quickly. And uh, that, in terms of her work and Google's work, really seems to be the key to strong innovation, doesn't it? Yeah, 100%. And I like Kim Scott's definition, similar type of matrix, but, yeah, she talks about that space where it's all challenge and demands as the sort of obnoxious aggression and and clearly you don't want to be in that space a lot and so if you don't have any care then that's where you end up is in this obnoxious aggression sort of category but if you only have care then she talks about ruinous empathy and (laughs) and that's not ideal either so the balance between the two is key I think what's happened during the pandemic is that we've We've uh, really leaned into the care side of things, both physical physical care as well as emotional care and psychological care, and that's been really important. Uh, and I think now with the CEOs we work with, we're hearing you know that the challenge of bringing back the cha- the demand is is proving challenging and so so there's sort of uh we may be over indexed on the care side and and we're hearing from some ceos that we work with that you know there's an entitlement mentality that's crept in now and this sense of well you know what i had it all sort of everything was working for me you you, you bent over backwards for me and now that's an expectation and so so it's quite an interesting i think talking about care right now is really important because how do you do that in the new world of work you know as we sort of adopt hybrid practices and so on and so forth, working sometimes from home, sometimes from anywhere, sometimes in the office. And what does care look like in that sort of context when ultimately you've got a business that you're running as well and and needs to perform? Very much so. And, um, you know, just thinking about all the demands on on leaders and managers and organisations. And I've heard some real anecdotal evidence that, you know, a number of leaders are really, really struggling now. They've been really working hard to try and build that connection in very challenging circumstances. But there was um, a study published in Bloomberg which said that 60% of managers said that their mental health had been hurt through the pandemic. And so self-care is very important, isn't it, as well for for leaders and, and staying in the right mood and the right energy levels. Yeah, 100%. And we, we had a great conversation recently with a lady called Jennifer Moss, who wrote the book, The Burnout Epidemic. And she just jagged the timing as she was writing doing the research pre-pandemic. But obviously, during the pandemic, things have gone through the roof from a burnout perspective. And she talks a lot about self-care and how critical that is. But she also talks about the fact that it's, again, not sufficient 
we also need to look at the organisational factors that are contributing to burnout, to, to mental ill health, and address those. If you're in a position where you can address them and influence them, then you need to, because ultimately, again, it's costing your company from a productivity and performance point of view. So even if you deep down really don't care that much, you probably, about people, you probably do care about your business. But I think most people aren't cyborgs. Most people, uh, you know, tend to be on the positive end of, of the scale in terms of sociopathy. So, so we do care. Um, but even if you didn't, it just makes good sense to put in place practices so you minimise the risk of burnout in the workplace and other issues related to, to mental health. In terms of your formal studies, why did you choose to go down the psychology route? Yeah, so it's funny, I wanted to be a physio. So, <laughs> uh, and I just missed out on the mark. If I'd done the HSC the previous year, I would have got in. So I was devastated at the time. I ran, rang up Sydney Uni and I said, what do I do? They said, <laughs> go do a Bachelor of Science, get a distinction average and transfer across so that was my plan, but I did psych in first year along with chemics, uh, chemistry, physics and maths, and uh, I just loved it and fell in love with the topic and then had the opportunity to do my honours and so did jumped at that and put, you know, really by that stage physio was off the agenda because I felt that the power of understanding Firstly, my own thinking and behaviour, but also that of others. Just I felt like this is a super skill or a super set of knowledge that everybody should have. And and then I specialised in in organisational psychology, and then I did so I did a masters in that, and and that was great because it was really all about humanity at its best. Went and and then I went back and did further studies in positive psychology, which didn't exist when I did my masters. Which is, which is really about, yeah, how do we grow from everything? The positive sign is around how, do, how does everything we go through add to our lives? It's not about being positive all the time because that's not always appropriate, but it is about how do we add to our lives from every experience and there's great science behind that. So I've just developed this real passion and, and, and desire to, to sort of use the science to help individuals, particularly leaders in companies and their teams to create high-performing and also very positive uh, from a well-being perspective environments. And for the purpose of our listeners, could you just explain how you went from graduating and that sort of stuff to now being the co-founder of Tenfold? What was your path through to there? Yeah, thanks, Graham. So, I so I guess what do you do with org psych? You can you, you can go and into consulting is one of the areas, or into private practice and and do coaching potentially. So there's a few different pathways. I went into, into consulting and worked with Mercer around the world uh, in their performance and talent area, which is what it was called back in the day, and uh, and it was amazing. You know, got to again go in look at remuneration strategies that companies had in place, their performance and talent systems, competency frameworks, all those sort of things, all of which are critical to human behaviour. And and that was amazing. So I had a great time working uh, with them and then went in-house with Mercer in their organisational development area and really helped to build the culture there across Australia and New Zealand and, a, a little, and did some work across Asia as well. Then I went into telco and, and that was really, I guess, where I, my 
uh, everything really clicked. And so I had the opportunity to play a role at the old three mobile. Do you remember three? Yeah, um, do, do they merge and they with Vodafone? Exactly. Right? Three is the yeah. magic number. It was uh, just such a cool <laughs> brand. We had the orange brand as well, which was even more loved. I think it's still that has the highest MPS of any telco ever in Australia, that, wow. that brand. And so it was just a, re- and that was cool. We were building this business. It was scaling super fast. And uh, we went from about, I don't know, three or 400,000 customers to about 2 million in the time that I was there. And then we merged with Vodafone and wow. we had suddenly had 9 million or, or so uh, customers. And it was just, a, it was a super exciting time. So, so that was great work because it was, again, all focused on creating this high-performing, high-well-being culture and, uh, and got to work with amazing people in the company, but also from overseas. And so that was a joy to start to connect with these global thought leaders that we brought in to work with us uh, about culture and performance and and really embedding sort of deeper personal insight and, and experience into the to the leadership journey. So we did quite a lot of deep reflective work uh, with people like Fred Kaufman, who you might have heard uh, of. He was at LinkedIn for a while, went on to Google, but had his own firm, Excellent, for a long time. Just an incredible teacher, Carolyn Taylor, who is, I think, the global guru in in culture management work and 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 many others but but you know they were just two so so again just a, a real joy to sort of follow the passion but in lots of different contexts and then finally ended up working in this ceo forum context joined a little company i'd never heard of but worked with the most amazing ceos and over the seven years i was with them Worked with about a thousand CEOs, again, all of whom lead the local operation of a global company. But in doing that, again, got to connect with all these global thought leaders as well as global CEOs and prime ministers and, and premiers and, and regulatory leaders. And so, yeah, the last 10 years, I, I felt like a pig in mud just working with <laughs> some of the smartest people on the planet with the most influence uh, in terms of thinking and policy and business decisions and uh, and but but really getting a sense of who they are and 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 that's been the joy for me I'm not a policy wonk I'm, I'm not you know I, I, I'm fascinated by politics but I'm more fascinated by the people behind the politics and and uh, and again, that's where the Sykes played out. And so, yeah, so it's been a really great, really interesting time. And and so then had the opportunity to launch the, the current business, Tenfold Australia, uh, a couple of years ago. And 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 it's been, a, again, a joy just to bring the psychology into that, because the number one challenge I hear from almost all the CEOs I work with are people related. And even if the housing looks like supply chain issues, microchip shortages or, or uh, you know, other issues related to pricing and how do we build in inflation and, and what about uh, brand issues. The, underneath all of those are people. And so at the end of the day, everything boils down to people. And as a, one of our old friends, Steve Amos, who now runs Zero, uh, says, you know, organisations don't change, people do. And and so th- this concept of the organisations of not real. It's not real. It's a it's a combination of all the people therein. And so if you can learn how to help and support those people, then you'll have a great organisation. When you set up Tenfold, you had a lot of experience in running similar things before, but 
you'd learnt a lot along the way. What did you decide were the critical planks to offer CEOs and their teams that you thought would add the most value? Yeah, again, just a wonderful opportunity to listen to what the CEOs liked and wanted over a period of time while I was working in the old international CEO forum and then then operationalise all, all that feedback at tenfold. So, yeah, I, I certainly, uh, it, was, it was a bit of a gift really just to have seven years to build a business model. But what we heard over and over again was, you know, there is this, and it's been again validated by research that we've we've been tapping into globally, that the speed of change in organisations is only getting faster, and you know we're we're living in what some people are calling an exponential era, where change isn't happening in a linear fashion; it's happening exponentially. I mean, our logo, that one circle, two circles, is a reflection of the start of that exponential journey where you go from one to two to four to eight, not one to two to three. And and that's, you know, change, things don't change in a linear fashion anymore. And the pandemic is just the ultimate example of that in a negative sense where things exponentially got out of hand. Um, fortunately, there's a lot of positive examples of exponential change and technology is a great, you know, great reference point there. You know, the speed of microchip processing, all, all those sort of things, it's getting faster and faster and smaller and smaller and cheaper and cheaper. So all of those things are brilliant for organisations and massive business opportunities. But in that context of exponential change, you need to learn exponentially as well. So the feedback we've gotten, going back to your question, the feedback that we've heard for many years is, you know, how do I speed up the the quality and quantity of my learning? And a lot of that has to do with not the old the old chestnut here, you know, not who what you know, but who you know, because invariably you're not ever going to be able to know enough. But if you can build a really high quality network of people that are relevant and intelligent, then then they'll know the answers to the challenges that you're facing or they'll be working through similar issues and you can crowdsource. So what we've built is really a, an opportunity for people to with that are similar enough but diverse enough so that they're challenging and stretching each other and providing new value um, where they can learn from each other and also we bring in then global thought leaders and national influencers to stimulate the conversations as well. So, yeah, the, the request has always been, you know, how can you help me learn faster and and not just me because, again, the day and age of the hero CEO, it, you know, died with Jack Welsh. It's, it's about the team, if not the whole organisation. Now everyone's a leader, but at the very least, if we can start with that most senior leadership team and make a difference to how they're thinking, align their thinking and behaviour through the power of great conversations with really, again, relevant and intelligent people, then then that sort of fast tracks the learning and the capability of those top teams. So you mentioned a couple of things there, you know, speed of learning, collaborating together. What are some of the other foundations of really great teams, do you think? Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic question. And and I one of one of the, in the workshops I run, I, I love sharing this little clip from Monty Python, uh, which <laughs> which is so old, it's super grainy, but you might remember it, Graham. Um, it's the the race for people with no sense of direction. Do you remember <laughs> that little skit? It's a cracker. So there's all the guys lined up on the track, and they were all guys back in actually. I think. 
anyway, uh, I digress. But yeah, they're all lined up on the track. They've got all their gear on, and the starter's gun goes up, and he goes, "Ready, set," and then the, the gun goes. And everyone just races off in totally different directions. And it's kind of like that's often how leadership teams work. They're all prepared. They've got the right gear on. They're even on the right track, but they don't have that clarity of direction. And so they run off in not necessarily entirely different directions, but that energy, even if, you know, across the team of eight or ten, they're they're sort of, you know, going forward, but with a radius of, I don't know, 45 degrees or something, there's a lot of energy to bring them back in and get them aligned. So I reckon one of the biggest things is alignment. And and for that, you require a really good sense of two things. One is where are we starting from? And secondly, where do we want to get to? A lot of companies focus on where we want to get to, but don't spend enough time talking about, well, where are we starting from? Yeah. And uh, I had a funny experience back at school. I was in cadets and I was, I was a night navigation activity and, and I was on a checkpoint. So, you know, I was a sergeant at the time. So all, the, all these recruits were running around the bush in the middle of the night. It was freezing cold. It was fantastic. Anyway, one, one guy, kid came through and he'd lost his compass. So I said, oh, you can have my compass. I took a direction and and then lined up some trees so I knew which way to go without the compass, you know, a few hours later when I came to check out. And um, anyway, that was fun. The kid went off. He, he got back to base and all the rest. And it, it was about 1 a.m. in the morning and I thought, oh, that, <laughs> better go back in and uh, I was freezing really cold by that stage anyway got my bearing and headed off and then got totally lost and this is really embarrassing because I'm supposed to be like the expert at this context (laughs) and here I was calling up saying I had a radio fortunately saying I'm lost it's uh like you know two o'clock in the morning by this stage what had happened was I'd actually got my bearing right like the direction was right so i knew you know the 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 trajectory that i was going on was correct what i'd actually got wrong was where i was starting from (laughs) and so as a result i ended up in a different place to where i wanted to get and so again these are these sort of variables where are you starting from where do you want to get to then line up the trajectory that you're going to you know the pathway to get there and those sort of three reference points are really critical for every team. And again, too often they just focus on where they want to get to and, and, and set off, not having had the conversation about where we're starting from. And, and so that's a sort of key thing for the whole team to discuss together. Because the CEO might have a different perspective of where they're starting from to the rest of the business or the rest of their team at the very least. And if that's the case, it's going to cause a whole lot of issues. When um, I do my uh, workshops, you know, there's no doubt that uh, you know direction and sense of purpose and mission is really, really important. But I ask people to reflect on a really great team they've been part of. You know, it could have been now, it could have been when you worked at McDonald's or you when you played footy or netball. And what was it that was unique about that team? What made it different? And um, the two things they talk about, the two that come up, there's about eight different options, but two come up one and two every time. And one of those, we have each other's back and uh, we enjoyed ourselves. And I think those two things, especially um, in, in COVID, where there has been just so much change, is, is really important as well, isn't it? 
Most definitely. Yeah, it's interesting. Again, the, the, the Gallup research around having a best friend at work, it always stands out to me, but it's, there's something similar in, to, to what you're just saying there about the, the joy side of things and just being in a space where it's, there is fun, there is, it's not enough, but it sure is hard to create a high-performing environment without it. Uh, another one of my favourite discussions I've had in the last little while at, at, with, with sort of these global thought leaders was with a lady called Lindsay McGregor, who, who, who is the co-CEO of, the, of a company called Vega Factor in New York. And she wrote this great book called Primed to Perform. And what Lindsay found was that there are three Ps that contribute to performance. The first one is what you're talking about, which is play. And by play, it's not necessarily, you know, having a, a ping pong table and whatever at work. It's, it's actually not that at all. It's, it's, uh, it's more around this space just to try things and, you know, experiment and, but have some fun in it as well. You know, make work a, a place where people do tap into their joy. And, uh, and so, and look, maybe ping pong is relevant in that context, but but it's more than just that. And yeah. uh, and so play is really important. You mentioned purpose, the second P, and that's obviously a key thing. A lot of companies are doubling down on that. We've our company is a ref, its name is a reflection of our purpose. We sort of believe that principle so much that you've got to be purpose driven, uh, and it, there's an enormous number of benefits to that. But yeah, Tenfold Australia's impact for our better world is our purpose. And we thought, well, if we believe it that much, let's call the company it. So that's where Tenfold Australia came about. And then the third P is potential. So potential, again, is super important. Uh, you know, are your people able to realise their potential and or feel like they're contributing to creating potential, you know, realising potential in the in society that's good. And and so good can be defined in lots of different ways. But, but again, to not just think about purpose, but to think about play and potential. And what Lindsay's research has found is that play is actually even more important than purpose, which is even more important than potential. So how do you create that environment for play? And uh, she's one of the only, you know, Vega Factor, one of the only groups I know that are talking about play in a way that is really performance oriented. And because it can sound a little bit, well, that's not very businessy, but it's their research is very much about business performance and play, purpose, and potential are critical to that. If you believe, like we do, that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress. And this provides easy to follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture Checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. 
www.ngo.org.au. In your role, you've had an opportunity to see how lots of organisations have gone through this time, this, this very uh, tumultuous time. What were some of the really good ideas or tactics that you saw some of your clients employ to build that sense of connection and, and by definition, that sense of belonging? Excellent. So one of the best examples, which again is so simple because a lot of this stuff isn't complicated or difficult. You just need to do it. But connection, as you say, was a real real challenge for, for, com- for all companies, but especially companies that were growing and bringing new people into the business who never who weren't having an opportunity to meet anybody. And so one thing that Amazon Web Services did, who are one of our first founding clients, um, they they set up hubs around Sydney. So restaurants at the time were still open. And, and so they identified about five different locations around Sydney where their people were or were within 10Ks or so of. And then they, they book out the, a restaurant and have everybody who lived in that area meet up. And so, and it meant, and the best thing about that idea, which was, sounds so simple, was that you, it was totally unrelated to level or function. It was just related to where you lived. And so people were meeting, you know, the, the CEOs or the VPs of this or that or whoever, uh, the, the person in the mail room, it didn't really matter. It was just about where you lived. And, and it didn't matter what function you're in either. And so there was this really great opportunity or, or tenure as well. So people that had been at AWS for ages were having lunch with people that were brand new. And, and, and as you know, Amazon's famous for its culture and, and whether you're in AWS or Audible or Amazon Alexa, the culture of Amazon, you know, pervades across all those different entities. So trying to find a way to preserve it was really important. And that was just a very simple but great idea. Yes, it costs some money, but how much does it cost when you lose someone because they join an organisation and they don't really connect? And so the cost was, you know, nothing compared to the potential cost when, when of people leaving. So it was just a, it was a great little simple tactic. Yeah, I heard that um, KPMG did the same thing. They shared postcodes you know, just so every person that was in a certain postcode knew everyone else there. And there are lots of great examples of people just, you know, walking together and never met before. I think it's very clever, just very clever to, uh, you know, to build that and, and create, you know, a web across the organisation. Um, yeah. Any other, any other good ideas you heard, Rich? Yeah. Oh, I mean, there's so many tactical things people were doing. Uh, I mean, there was, and this again goes back to the burnout research. So, the that Jennifer Moss has produced she, she because a lot of you know people were focusing on hampers and sort of perks and things like that which are all helpful somewhat but can actually be detrimental if you're not doing the deeper work and so that's where again these these tactics that people are quick to share because they're easy stories to share if you don't get that balanced with really understanding the organisational drivers of either well-being or burnout or you know, mental ill health, then you can be doing yourself a disservice and wasting a whole lot of money. Um, and so, so just just very briefly, that you know there are sort of six key areas that companies need to be thinking about when it comes to you know, contribution to to burnout and workload is the the first one. It's a big one. 
But during this time, you know, how are you managing workload? Because normally you can see if people are in the office to all hours, but we didn't have that opportunity over the last couple of years and we won't going forward necessarily. And, you know, I've struggled with this. It's hard to know. Is my team, are they fully productive or are they, you know, are they, am I, or are they getting burnt out? Is there too much or is there too little? It's just hard to tell. So really building systems to, and having clear expectations around performance and 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 then really strong feedback loops is is a critical pathway to, to manage burnout uh, to manage workload but a couple of other things you know lack of control if people perceive that they can't control their environment and and obviously with covid there were a whole lot of environmental factors which we couldn't control so at work yeah you almost needed to double down on that sense of control so how do you do that with your people give them more and that's where the play bit i mentioned before comes in giving people a bit more autonomy to decide how they work when they work where they work these are all these are all variables of control which are really relevant and, and help to decrease the, the the potential of burnout um number three was the lack of recognition and so burnout again often occurs where people don't feel valued so how simple is that as a leader to address you know, understanding, providing feedback, um, recognizing what they're doing, not just what they're achieving, but also how they're working in a very complex and sort of ambiguous environment. Number four was poor relationships. Um, So again, where relationships tend to break down, that's the Gallup research about having a best friend at work. That's where people start to feel burnt out. So how do you build relationships and and uh, make sure that that's like the AWS example? People are connecting even if they're not always working together. Lack of fairness is number five. So if people feel like someone's tr- getting treated differently to them, you know that just exacerbates any underlying issues. And and finally, six was values and skills mismatch. So if people and again this is harder when when you're working remotely. If people don't feel like the job they've got is sort of aligned with the skills and values that they have, then that'll pretty quickly contribute to burnout as well. So all of these things are just a little sort of watch outs, little uh, cues in helping people to, in, as a leader, things you can be looking to and thinking about in in considering what's going to make a real difference to my people uh, during this time over and above the perks, the yoga, the the mindfulness apps and all those sort of things. These are real organisational variables that you can be doing something about every day. And earlier this morning, you posted on LinkedIn about the huge costs to businesses around, you know, mental health issues. And I think it was the Productivity Commission, right? And they said it was $200 billion. That seems, it's a, it's a massive number, isn't it? Yeah, for poor mental health in the nation, $200 billion over that per annum. Uh, and that was research the Productivity Commission did in 2020. So, you know, the, the cost of that might be even greater now. And, and you, and it makes sense. I mean, I know when I'm, when I'm feeling pretty flat, I, I, I tend to, my, my work rate is totally different. And, and it's just, and, and, and it takes many forms. Um, and so I, I think that, that, yeah, it's just one of those variables that um, it is a productivity issue, it is a performance issue, and, and we need to, to, at the very least for those reasons, address it, but it's a human issue as well. And it's close to the heart of so many people. You know, it was at last and PwC shared a report that, um, the report was called uh, Return on Action, 
and said that, that mental health was the number one issue that employees care about, number one society issue. And so it has really grown importance, hasn't it, in the last uh, last two years in particular? Yeah, and it's it's surprising, isn't it? It's kind of like why why does it you know why is it taken so long? It seems crazy, but uh, you know one of the we support about sixty five not for profits as part of our program. We've got like a matching program, you know, Tom's shoes where you buy a pair of shoes and someone in the third world gets a pair of shoes. Like we we're inspired by that idea, and so we thought, well, every multinational client that we have can nominate a charity that gets access and. And so that's that's been a real joy to support charities that often don't develop their leadership capability, but arguably would run a more effective charity if they did. So 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 we're trying to help out in that way, which is which is really exciting for us and very purpose oriented, and yeah, really taps into our purpose. Um, so so my charity that I nominated is Gotcha for Life. And Gotcha for Life, Gus Wallen, uh, he and I went to school together and um, he's, uh, he's a good mate of my brother's. And, and, but I love the focus there. You know, I mean, Gus had a, a dear friend of his commit suicide and, and just thought, what the hell is going on here? You know, we need to do, we need to address this, we need, especially men. We need to be talking about it three times the number of men commit suicide every day to women you know, six men, two women every day in Australia. And and we have to be one of the best nations on the planet in terms of lifestyle, education, you know, all those variables which you would think are indicators of the risk of suicide, yet we've got one of the highest rates in the world and it's one of the highest killers for for men between 40. I think it is the highest killer of, of, of men between 15 and 44. It's I mean, it's just crazy. Why yeah. is this the case? And so, and I think, again, at a, in an organisational capacity, we have the opportunity to address a lot of the symptoms yeah, um, yeah. or the contributors. I don't think, yeah, the workplace can be the major contributor, but often it's, it's, it's something that just adds to the scenario that the person's facing. Um, but the flip side of that is it's also the, one of the best places that could be helping because there's, it provides people with purpose, play, potential, those concepts we talked about before, and they're, they are, they're all things that get people out of bed if we get leadership and management right. And, and so I'm excited about the role of the workplace in helping to reduce that, that level of suicide. But obviously suicide is just one variable and it's a terrible statistic, but there's a whole lot of things that can happen preceding that that we need to address as well, and, and organisations are a great place to do that. How do you practice self-care? What are the important elements of you, for you to keep yourself in a positive mood and positive energy state? Yeah, it's it's funny. I, I, I've, I've had a bit of a journey with that and, and it's part of the reason why I'm really passionate about this topic of well-being because I, until I was about 40, I... I was, you know, I, I for example, I, I left when I left one of my uh, organizations to go to another job. They gave me a little sort of hamper of things, and in it was like the Mister Happy mug, the Mister Happy book, 
you know, it was all this stuff about me being Mr. Happy. And I, and that's kind of who I was up until about 39. Uh, yeah, a few of my closest friends said, we thought, when we first met you, we thought you were fake because it was like you were so happy all the time, so positive. We thought no one can be that happy all the time. Anyway, it turns out they were right um, because I had a really tough period, my, my triggered by my dad's death. And, and for three years, I was in a, a, a state of, you know, very much just, you know, post-traumatic stress, not because of his death but triggered by his death and a whole lot of unresolved sort of trauma that had happened earlier in my life came to the surface, three different events all at the same time as though they happened yesterday. And that, you know, I was a psychologist um, who had done all this work on sort of well-being and a lot of self-work and it just blindsided me. And so I went from, yeah, Mr. Happy to very much Mr. Grumpy for, uh, <laughs> for three years. And I joke about it now, I can, but it wasn't funny at the time. It was incredibly challenging. And, um, but it gave me a real, a huge appreciation for the fact that it's a slippery slope, this mental health. Mm. It and is. we can be in a, an amazing place one day and the next day it can feel like the world's sort of turning in on itself. And the, and the interesting thing for me was I kind of buried myself in work. It was my escape. It was a place I could go to get away from the, the sort of the noise in my head that was very toxic. And, and uh, so I was performing, but I, I was not functional emotionally. And, I, again, so there's a nuance which you, we don't talk a lot about, which in psychology we do, which is high-functioning, you know, people that are high-functioning with mental illness. Now, often we focus on the people that are sort of down and out and, and seem low effect and, and, you know, don't come to work or when they are at work, they just don't engage. And they're the sort of, that's, that's a huge part of, of this, you know, population that is dealing with mental illness that we know is up to 20% of the population at any point in time. But there's a bunch of people that you're working with that you may not have any idea are struggling emotionally and psychologically because they seem to be performing actually really well. And even worse than that, sometimes we reward those people and promote them because they are performing so well because they're using the workplace as an escape from the from the the noise or the the distraction or whatever else is going on for them psychologically. So I'm very tuned into that and working with high performers and coaching CEOs and working closely with with high performers in organizational context of just what, you know where they are at and and how are they going and is you know because it is a slippery slope and you might think you're bulletproof but nobody is but I can tell you as well once you've taken a few a fair bit of shrapnel and and I did for three years I, I feel like I'm a better person for it and I have a much greater appreciation for this topic and supporting people that are going through it as well and it, it's also all this. Um rapid change in work and life, this puts a real change or strain rather on relationships and marriage and that sort of thing. Yeah. And you, you mentioned when we previously met that uh, you and your wife run um, marriage courses and uh, just really interested about why you went down that road and what you think are the really important elements for a strong marriage or a strong relationship for that matter. Yeah, that's right. And again, it's it's a it's about the, the life partnership. That's what that's what this course is really about. And and I think whatever form that takes, it's so critical. I, I guess 
the argument for it is 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 sort of just the cost of when it doesn't work and the, that cost is you can measure in a million different ways financially certainly there's a very real cost to to part life partnerships breaking down but equally just the the emotional toll on the individuals but then if there are children involved clearly them and and the friendships you know uh, that are fractured as a result. Um, that there's and and the time that goes into it. Now and now, you know, again, the stats are close to fifty fifty of these life partnerships working out long term. Um, and you could argue, well, you know, when the idea of marriage was created, we uh, we only lived to thirty six or forty <laughs> or something. So surely it's it's a, an archaic sort of concept in today's day and age with our life spans being what they are. I don't know, but I do know that um, for for you know, I think there's something really powerful in uh, the diversity of thought that a partnership brings about. And and if you can uh, make that partnership work for a long time, then you can. There's a safety that comes from that, and a and a foundation that enables you to sort of go out and and uh, back yourself and be a better version of yourself. Um, so, so I, I, I'm I'm passionate about that. What what makes it what makes a great partnership work? Uh, you know, obviously there's things like communication. You know, it's it's not dissimilar to actually some of the some of the frameworks and material from the marriage course that we run I have used in a corporate setting because it's so so relevant it's whether the partnership's a work one or a life one it's it's this it's very similar stuff obviously there's a few exceptions I hope there's a few exceptions <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah. the you're listening for example you know we talk a lot about listening and uh, and really being a great communicator you know we talk a lot about influences from the past you know how you're how you were raised and the roles that your parents played and how they play out in your marriage now based on the expectations you have. Uh, we talk about love languages. So that's a really great topic. Have you come across love languages? Because that's Yeah, I have. I have. Very, very interesting just to see how different people perceive different things as being love. Very, very insightful. Exactly. Just realising that, hang on, I've been serving you. Service is one of the love languages. So I mow the lawn, I cook the dinner, I do all these things, and 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 you never say thank you, or you never, and because words are another love language, and and so if your two love languages are service and words, and your your partner never does anything for you or says anything when you do something for them, then you, you're not going to feel the love. Whereas all your partner might want is to spend time with you. <laughs> and just, just to, and that time is another love language. Or they might just want you to occasionally write them a little note or buy them some flowers because gifts for them is their love language. So sort of tokens of your love is what the gifts one's all about. And so again, just learning your love languages, that's kind of 101 for any relationship. And then touch is the fifth love language, which can be just from, you know, just a hug to, to whatever else. Um, but, but again, some people, uh, all about that's really important that touches in there in that dynamic and for other people it's not relevant and so if we're speaking different languages then the, it makes it hard in the relationship to realize that that's okay they're just different languages and and the more we can learn to speak each other's languages the the better the relationship will be yeah fantastic uh, insight there it's been a really wonderful chat rich um just a couple more questions that i'd be interested in getting your thoughts about um a person's just been promoted to manager for the first time. What advice would you give them? 
Oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I would certainly, I'd love to talk to them before they got there just to ask them, do they really want it? Um, is kind of where my brain first went, but the way you phrased the question, they've already got it. <laughs> but why I'd say that is because I, you know, I think I remember hearing um, a great uh, CEO, he, was, he used to run Elders, and, uh, and he said, you know, be careful what you wish for with promotions because you might end up in a role where you're working a lot longer hours under more pressure in a space that you're not actually so good at because you've gone from maybe some sort of technical specialist to suddenly managing people. And you might get a promotion, but when you work out the extra, sorry, in pay, but when you work out the hours you're doing in this new job with greater responsibility, you might be actually getting a, <laughs> a pay decrease, not an increase. Absolutely. And so Absolutely. just be careful what you wish for. Don't don't be too quick to rush it. Uh, and that's he was a very seasoned CEO and, and it really hit me between the eyes when I heard him say that. Um, but assuming that you got the gig and you're a manager, I loved, you know, Guy Russo. He came back from running McDonald's in China to, to, to look after and turn Kmart around and did an amazing job of that. Anyone that's been in a Kmart, you know, recently or in the last five years compared to before that, it knows just how much he transformed that business. And, and he, he shared a story with us that, you know, the, what he did was a listening tour. So when he first came back in, all he did for the first six, three, six months was listen. Again, listening has come through a few times today in marriages and partnerships and, and now, but it was like, just listen, you know, new manager, go out, spend time with your people, spend time that you're leading, spend time with the people that you're serving and ask lots of questions. And, and Guy didn't make any big decisions about Kmart until he'd had that listening tour. And that wasn't just with his team around Australia. It was also with customers and suppliers and providers. And, um, and he just wanted to understand before he made any decisions. And I thought, yeah, that's super. And, he, and Guy's an amazing CEO. Yeah, just, just great advice because that underpins everything, doesn't it? And uh, when... Um we previously interviewed Bob Chapman, the author of Everybody Matters, and uh, it's his contention that people don't really know how to care and they need to learn how to care by learning empathetic listening. And they actually have a three-day course dedicated to empathetic listening. So, uh, you know, it's really coming through, isn't it, as a very, very important skill for a manager or anyone, quite frankly, to uh, to be good at. <laughs> it's a huge life skill. And, and again, we don't teach that at school. We don't teach the psychology stuff we've been talking about today at school. We don't teach care at school, but I think we're missing something. <laughs> you know, I'd love to... I'd love to sort of, I love the work you're doing, Graham, at, 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 as part of this podcast and the broader work and the work at RUIK. It's just so critical. And, yeah. and I just feel like, yeah, if, if we could get into schools earlier, the, the earlier the better. And, and that's, that's the hope, I guess, that you know, we, can, we can work on together maybe. Yep, sounds great, sounds great. And final question, Rich, which I always ask, and that is, um, Knowing what you know now and all your experience now, what advice would you give your 21-year-old self or whatever age you were when you just came through out of your psychology 
degree, what advice would you give yourself? It's such a great question, and I often ask it of other people, but I haven't had anyone <laughs> ask me this one before. So, <laughs> um, I, I think, um, I think I'd a, a concept I like is, and I don't know where I heard it from, but it's this concept of trust the process. Uh, and what does that mean? I, I do believe, again, both spiritually but also psychologically that we're we're sort of we're built to grow from trial and trauma and we know that you know you go to the gym you tear muscles to build them up and then importantly the muscles don't build when you're at the gym they build when you're recovering and so recovery is a key part of that as well so we know physically how growth works same applies emotionally and psychologically and uh and and so i think again when i've been going through the these really hard times. I'd love to go back to my 21-year-old self and go, Rich, you know, there's going to be some crappy stuff coming. Um, it's it's inevitable because we live in a world that's that's not all, you know, bells and whistles. It's uh, it's it's it, There are challenges and we're very fortunate in this nation, but there's still stuff that happens and that's inevitable. But trust that you will grow from it. Trust that there will be... Uh, opportunity in this for you to know yourself better to become a better version of yourself and be able to serve others at a higher level as a result of this and and at the darkest moments so i guess of my three years of post-traumatic stress there was this that's kind of i kind of held on to that that this will not just get better but i'll be better for this and um and i think you know that sometimes that's all you can hold on to is that yeah, that that there's got to be some some greater sort of purpose and contribution that this trial will will bring about. And I, and if I look backwards, I feel like every single trial I've been through, that's always been the case. Yeah, what a great message to finish on, Rich. Uh, it's been wonderful having you on the show, and thanks for supporting the Caring CEO. Thanks, Graham, for the opportunity. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable WeCare mental health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Thanks for joining us.